0: Hello, and welcome to In Conversation With, a podcast from the Lancet Healthy Longevity. It's July 2022, and I'm Cahill McQuillan. This month, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Christopher Micton from the Demographic Change and Healthy Aging Unit, Department of Social Determinants of Health at WHO. Dr. Micton's new qualitative policy analysis on the factors shaping the global political priority of elder abuse is online now on thelancet.com. So thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It's it's a real pleasure to speak with you. It's uh, it's a pleasure for me. Thank you for inviting me. No problem at all. So just getting stuck straight in. Uh, your paper addresses the global prioritization or lack thereof of elder abuse. Could you please begin by describing the effects of elder abuse on both an individual and societal level and how global priority is defined?
1: Yeah, sure. So. Elder abuse has many different serious effects. Um, For the individual, we really have the strongest evidence for the following consequences. Premature mortality. uh, Elder abuse increases the risk of mortality. One study by Baker and colleagues in 2009 in women from 50 to 79 showed that the risk of mortality was 1.5 times higher among those who had been abused. There's also strong evidence that elder abuse leads to depression, and of course it can lead to uh, physical injuries. Um, There's also good evidence for other physical health consequences, bodily pain, musculoskeletal pain, poor general health, digestive problems, gastrointestinal symptoms, and evidence for other mental um, psychological consequences, anxiety, suicidal thoughts can also lead to placement in nursing homes, Um, financial abuse can lead to financial difficulties, and there's also an increase in healthcare utilization, increased frequency of health visits, um, increased healthcare consumption. There's limited evidence, but some evidence for a whole range of other physical health problems, decline in physical function, weight problems, uh, diabetes, headaches, and so forth, and for other um, mental health consequences, stress, sleeping problems, poor uh, self-rated mental health, um, and a few others. When it comes to the effect on society, we know a lot less. We know that elder abuse affects not only the victims, but also their families, undermining uh, family solidarity, undermining family trust. Uh, But we have very limited evidence on the wider costs to society, especially the financial costs. There has been one study in the States that looked at the cost of financial abuse and financial fraud among older people, and they estimated that it cost up to uh, $36.5 billion a year annually. So that's the cost of just one subtype of abuse. There are other subtypes, physical, psychological, sexual. This is just financial abuse and financial fraud. When it comes to um, what we mean by global priority, we're using a very specific definition here that was um, developed by Jeremy Schiffman and um, his colleagues. And in their work, and this is the definition we're using, global priority refers to the degree to which international and national political leaders actively give attention to an issue and follow up that attention with the provision of financial, technical, and human resources that are commensurate with the severity of the issue. So it's really a degree to which leaders, international, national political leaders, give attention to the issue in terms of financial uh, provision, technical and human resources, that's commensurate in keeping with the kind of severity of the
0: issue. What were the aims of your study and and how did your methodology address these aims?
1: Yeah, the aim of the study was really quite simple, is to figure out why elder abuse has not received more attention globally. Um, More technical terms is to identify the factors accounting for the low global priority of elder abuse. And we used a method of qualitative policy analysis to address this aim. Um, It's a tried and tested approach which has been used to identify the determinants of political priority of uh, quite a few other global health problems, such as urban health, early childhood development global surgery, maternal mortality. And this approach has been developed by Jeremy Schiffman and Yusra Shawar and colleagues. And Yusra was actually one of the co-authors on on this paper. The method we used was made up of two parts. One, a series of interviews. And the second, a systematic review of the relevant literature. Um, We interviewed 26 key informants, from different types of organizations, from different regions of the world, from different country income level. These were experts in, in the area of uh, elder abuse. And then we did a systematic review. Um, we searched through electronic databases and organizational websites, websites of organizations that deal with this issue. Um, this was uh, included a lot of peer-reviewed literature and uh, organizational reports. And we ended up with 123 publications, which we then used. And we analyzed all this material, a transcript of the interviews and these 123 uh, publications using a thematic analysis. And uh, we used as a starting point these frameworks developed by Schiffman and colleagues to understand the determinants of political priority of global health issues.
0: So, I know you said that there was no global prioritization, but are there any individual nations that you uh, saw as a, as a good example of what to base on or any um, framework to base on?
1: Yeah. Uh a bit reluctant to pick out nations because i i don't know we haven't like done a, a, a policy mapping exercise to figure out what you know every country in the world is doing so it's it's hard to to know for sure but I know Canada has done a, a huge amount in this area and uh, they probably are a, you know a, a country that's leading this field in terms of resources devoted to it for a long time now in terms of policy development and in, in terms of research so yeah Canada, Canada would probably be one one of the countries. But uh, other countries, I know France has done quite a lot. um, The European Union has done quite a lot over the years. So there are a number of countries. And I know in Malaysia, because I collaborate with a team in Malaysia, they've also done quite a lot on this issue.
0: So what were the key barriers to the global priority of elder abuse that were identified in your findings?
1: Yeah, so we identified three sets of um, barriers or factors that accounted for the lack of global priority. First set has to do with the nature of the issue of elder abuse. The second set of factors has to do with the policy environment. And the third set of factors has to do with the proponents, you know, the people, the organizations trying to tackle abuse of older people. So in relation to the nature of the issue, Uh, We identified four factors. The first of these is the complexity of the issue. It's quite inherently a complex issue. There are different types of abuse, physical, sexual, psychological, neglect, financial, and sometimes some other types are added. And it varies depending on cultural context. And there's also a requirement that there's a relationship of trust between the person abused and the abuser. So it's a complex issue. So that was the first um, factor uh, related to the nature of the issue. Second one is ageism. Both in the documents and in in the interviews, ageism really emerged as one of the major reasons people think this issue hasn't received more priority. And it's also considered to be a risk factor for elder abuse, um, even though there isn't that much empirical data supporting that, but that may well be the case. Um, The third factor that has to do with the nature of the issue is the prevalence estimates we have. People, on the one hand, don't know about these uh, prevalence estimates, so we have to kind of increase awareness of the scale of the problem. The second problem is that um, these prevalence estimates are questioned. Some people think they're overestimates, and other people think they're underestimates. Overestimates, because they think that some of the thresholds, especially for psychological abuse, are too low and underestimates mainly because people think um, that there's uh, quite a lot of underreporting of uh, elder abuse. And the fourth problem linked to um, the nature of the the issue is the intractability of the issue. Currently, there isn't a single intervention that's been shown to be effective in a high-quality evaluation. So currently, we don't really have any effective evidence-based interventions. The second set of issues has to do with the policy environment, and really here there's only one factor we identified, and that's the field hasn't really been able to capitalize on policy windows and processes, Uh, global policy windows and processes such as the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, or the COVID pandemic. Increased awareness of the issue, and there's a sense in the field that we're people haven't been able really to take advantage of this, um, this uh, window of opportunity. Then there are four factors related to the proponents uh, tack- of tackling elder abuse. First of these is a difficulty within the field in reaching a common understanding of the problem of abuse. And that's partly due to its complexity and number of debates about definitions, but that's one issue that kind of has hampered action, you know, lots of definitional wrangling that sometimes detracts from actually doing things. Second factor related to the proponents is the framing of elder peace. At the global level, it tends to be framed either as a human rights issue or a public health issue. And people haven't really exploited kind of the possible synergies between this dual framing. The third factor here is um, the weakness of global networks and organizations and also individual leaders in this area. This field really needs better coordination between the many different organizations working here, um, needs more cohesive networks, and it also needs better funding. And then the last um, factor accounting for the uh, low global priority of the issue is that the field of elder abuse has struggled to forge alliances with other area, other constituencies, such as the violence prevention community more broadly, or people um, combating ageism, or, or people um, working in the areas of disability or dementia. It's kind of important that they establish stronger links with these other issues to increase the awareness and the
0: political visibility of the issues. How can these barriers be overcome in policy research and interventions across different countries and cultures? particularly in in resource-limited settings.
1: Yeah. But we're we're trying to do that at the moment, so I'll describe what we're up to. Um, So drawing on this research into the determinants of the political priority of elder abuse and an evidence and gap map we did, we tried to map all the evidence in this field. Uh, the evidence on prevalence, on risk factors, on interventions, etc. So drawing on those two sources, we engaged in a priority-setting exercise for the field with about 50 international experts and stakeholders really to try to identify, you know, what are the priorities the field should be addressing to actually have an impact on this issue and and to increase its uh, visibility. We identified five priorities, and we're going to try to address these throughout the remainder of the decade of healthy aging. The decade of healthy aging is a UN and WHO um, initiative that is trying to improve the lives of older people, improve the lives of their families, improve the lives of communities they work, uh, they live in through 10 years of concerted action. And we've identified 10 priorities that this decade of healthy ageing can try to address to um, ultimately reduce the prevalence of uh, elder abuse. And these priorities are combating ageism, which is one factor that came out in in the study on uh, determinants of uh, lack of um, global priority... Second um, priority is to generate more and better data on prevalence. As I said, we noticed that the uh, data on prevalence is often not well enough known and somewhat questionable. And also more data on risk and protective factors, especially in low and middle income countries. Data on prevalence in low and middle income countries is still sorely lacking. And then develop and scale up cost-effective interventions. As I said Uh, The study showed that there are really very few cost-effective interventions to um, prevent and uh, respond to elder abuse. So that's going to be one of the topmost priorities. And then also make the investment case to persuade people that addressing elder abuse is money well spent. And the last priority, and it's kind of the most obvious in a way, is try to raise funds to address this issue um, in a more sustained way. So we started work on addressing these priorities, um, including in resource-limited settings. For instance, we are developing what we're calling an intervention accelerator. It's really a network of people working on the development and the testing of interventions, try to pool resources, to share knowledge, and to try to develop in the longer term a package of effective interventions to uh, address elder abuse. we just started work on this project. It's going to be a multi-year project. We're also trying to um, develop better measures of elder abuse. Again, we're in the very first stages of that process. So we can do a series of multi-country studies to generate better estimates of prevalence. So um, having good estimates of prevalence, global estimates of prevalence, is really very important for advocating for the issue. If you don't really know what the scale of the issue is, it's it's hard to raise awareness. Um, so that's the second thing we're doing. We haven't started working on this yet, but we're going to try to strengthen leadership and coordination of the different organizations working on this through the UN uh, Decade of Healthy Aging and all the various partners who are involved in that. And we have a campaign now to combat ageism. And as I said, you know, the, one of the reasons that this issue has not received sufficient attention is because of ageism. So that's our strategy at this point to address this issue and try to reduce um, elder abuse.
0: So looking ahead, how do you see the prioritization of elder abuse changing over the next decade? And moreover, in the pan- in the aftermath of the pandemic, during which pervasive ageism, you know, as you said, was exposed and rates of elder abuse increased, are we already seeing any changes being made?
1: Yeah. So Prioritization in the next 10 years? Well, we hope, thanks to our efforts, to you know the, the study we did on the determinants of political priority, thanks to this prioritization exercise, we engage in the five priorities for the field we identified. We really hope that through this decade of healthy aging, which finishes in 2030, we'll be able to make a difference in, in this area. And I believe we will. I think it's the first time that the fields got together in this way and tried to come up with a coherent strategy to address it and and try to coordinate activities in in, in a more strategic way. So I think there's a good chance we will be able to make a difference. The pandemic, I, the pandemic definitely led to an increase of awareness of ageism, and I think to a lesser extent, but to some extent of elder abuse, particularly in long-term care institutions and in the health sector more broadly. But I think there's something of a window of opportunity here that's going to close soon pandemic, or at least some aspects of the pandemic, the lockdowns, and they're starting to be part of the past. We're moving on to other things. So this window of opportunities may be closing, and we should probably try to take advantage of it as much as we can now. I, I think with this issue, we will. I think we'll continue to struggle to Really increase awareness and priority. I mean, if we try to identify all these different factors that are probably responsible for the lack of priority, but there is an issue, and we identified this in, in the study, and that's the, the shame and the stigma associated with the issue, and and, and the sense that well people are, find it almost aversive to to think about, you know, older people being physically abused, sexually abused, and, and they seem to want to turn away from this quite quickly. So I think this is a, a bit of a, a challenge in this area. I, I work on the issue of social isolation and loneliness as well among older people and across all ages, and it's linked to health. And I just noticed that there's much more enthusiasm for that topic. It, it doesn't have the same sense of stigma, shame. To an extent, it does, but not, not as acutely in the sense of aversion. So, so I, I really think um, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult issue. And I was talking with um, a representative of a philanthropic organization, and uh, we thought, okay, well, why don't we ask them if they're interested in funding elder abuse activities? And the answer was, well, I don't think our board is ready for that yet. So so this is a topic where I think we have to do quite a bit of more work reducing the stigma, reducing the aspect of things. Um but I hope, you know, with the activities that we've now decided on uh with the other UN partners, with civil society organizations, that will be able to make a significant difference by the end of this decade of healthy aging in twenty thirty.
0: No. It really is a shame that it is, you know, such a stigma, and, and people are are so afraid to talk about the topic because it really is it, it is an important issue, and I think your work is is really important. Thanks very much for for taking the time to speak with me, Chris. It's been a real pleasure chatting to you. You can read Dr. Micton's research online now on The Lancet dot com. Thank you to Dr. Micton, and thank you for listening to this episode of In Conversation with. Remember, you can subscribe to In Conversation with. The Lancet Healthy Longevity, wherever you usually get your podcasts.